Welcome back to The Planet Today with Matt Norton. Today is Friday, July 23rd, 2021. I am your host, Matt Norton, here once again with our producer slash co-host, Nick Janusa. Nick, how are you doing today? Maddie? I am bright as a button. It is a beautiful Friday, finally some good weekend weather. I think this is probably the first weekend that we've had some nice weather and maybe, I'd say probably all of summer. Yeah, and it looks like it's going to be a little bit cooler this weekend than it will be next week, so definitely taking advantage of that. Yeah. Yeah, going to be a little bit of a sweaty one next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely going to get hot once again. If you're new here, welcome to the planet today. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy, all in an easily digestible weekly podcast for you to listen to on your own time. This show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental, whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics. TPT has a little bit for everyone, so we are happy to have you as a listener. Before we get started, we wanted to read a few more listener reviews on Apple Podcasts as a thank you for supporting the show. Yeah, okay, so KJ5115 says, my favorite Friday morning listen, and says the show has something for everyone. Thank you, KJ. We are glad to hear that you're loving the show so far. That is extremely high praise. Andrew302 says, our show is a wonderful listen. It makes you truly think. Wow, thank you so much, Andrew302. And we will keep reading a review or two each week, so just leave us that five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts so we can thank you right here on the show. Before we get started, this week was National Zookeeper Week, so thank you to all the zookeepers who provide great care to their animals and play a pivotal role in wildlife conservation. I'm sure some people think zookeepers are just influencing the lives of their animals that they come in contact with directly, but through captive breeding programs, they're also helping the long-term survival of the entire species. So big thanks. Yeah, they're doing the Lord's work. Huge thanks to all the zookeepers out there. Keep doing the great work that you guys do. So we are going to kick the show off, as always, with some quick hits. Um, it seems like last week there were a bunch of news stories that broke like 10 minutes after we finished recording. So we are playing a little bit of catch up now. I mean, I, I texted Nick. We were probably done for, like I said, 10 minutes. And I was like, dude, we just missed this. <laughs> and maybe half an hour later, I was like, do they know when we record our show? <laughs> yeah, there's like literally three stories in one shot, like 15 minutes after. Um, okay, so let's go ahead and get right into it. So the first one comes from the Associated Press through NPR. And the title of the article is Europe has an ambitious new climate plan that be imagines a dramatic cut in emissions. The EU announced last Wednesday a goal to cut carbon emissions by 55% by 2030. The European Commission, which is the executive branch of the European Union, presented the legislation, which encompasses a bunch of major proposals that all contribute to climate change mitigation. As a reminder, mitigation is preventative measures to make sure climate change doesn't get as bad as it could. The legislation, which is called Fit for 55, ranges across different policy areas and economic sectors, including climate, energy and fuels, transport, buildings, land use, and forestry. The plan also focuses on balancing between pricing, targets, standards, and support measures. So if it sounds like it's kind of this overarching plan that's taking in a bunch of different factors and making sure we get a good outcome, that's because it is. Um, one thing that Fit for 55 includes that I'm excited about is phasing out of gasoline and diesel cars by 2035 and new taxes on gas from heating buildings. 
The legislation also includes a plan to tax foreign companies for the pollution that they cause. The EU currently has an emissions trading program where companies pay for the CO2 they emit, and this program is actually being revamped under Fit for 55 to include taxes on shipping and aviation fuels for the first time ever, which is awesome because I know that we've talked in the past about some things that don't really get looked at a lot when we're looking at um, emissions. And one of those that I've brought up is transportation and, you know, shipping to bring goods to different places. So, you know, it's going to have an impact on the prices, but I'm still excited that this is going to create a good outcome. An increase in the sale of electric vehicles is likely under fit for 55 as the EU looks for a 100% reduction in auto emissions. And basically, the aim of the entire legislation is to lessen the dependency of Europe on fossil fuels and to take better care of the environment through policy design instead of just waiting and needing to do something desperate in the future after we reach this point of no return. European Commission Executive Vice President Franz Timmermans said that by failing to act now, we would fail our children and grandchildren who, in my view, if we don't fix this, will be fighting wars over water and food. The proposals will be subject to lobbying from both industry groups and environmental groups as each proposal passes through the legislative process, which is going to be ongoing for the next year at least. So the story isn't over by any means, but I still think this is great news. Germany's environment minister, Svenja Scholze, highlights a really important message here by saying, national solo efforts won't lead the goal. There needs to be a coordinated, massive expansion of sun and wind power from the North Sea to the Mediterranean. The plan is not without criticism, however, as Oxfam EU head Evelyn von Romberg urged the member countries to be even more ambitious than the European Commission. She said that countries should aim for emission cuts of 65% by 2030. A big area of concern comes from helping those likely to be hardest hit by rising energy prices, and the commission is proposing to create a social climate fund worth several billion euros to help those who feel the greatest impact. And that's something that we've talked about extensively throughout this show is equity. And I feel like the sentiment can be extended to the entire world because climate change truly is a global problem and we will require global solutions to fix it. So with this Fit for 55 legislative plan, I'm just excited to see what other dominoes may fall in other parts of the world now that the EU has taken this step. It feels like only the more developed countries can be held to these standards. Like I feel like the countries that are not as established and maybe can't afford the more renewable energy sources yet? Like, what is their goal? Or should we just kind of evolve the wealthier nations first and then hope that the underdeveloped nations can kind of eventually follow suit? So, interesting question, and there's two schools of thought there. The first would be, you know, that that second one that you mentioned, should we just evolve the wealthier nations and then hope that the other ones catch up? That one worries me because it kind of just prolongs this problem. Right. The other problem would be that, you know, they're still going to be creating emissions and who knows at that point if we reach that tipping point too early. So the other one is that, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but it's that leapfrogging idea where they can skip through heavily relying on natural gas and, you know, ramping up their coal production. And instead we can help them out and we can, you know, send over technology and send over solar panels, wind turbines. Stuff that, yeah, it's, you know, going to cost money for these wealthier nations to essentially pay for developing nations to have renewable energy. But 
the other cost would be far greater and it's let the planet get destroyed by watching and holding on to your money and if there's no one to spend the money then what good is that money yeah and it's almost like a kind of like a counteracting effect like if we can kind of or the wealthier nations can kind of put their money where their mouth is and and really make some change then maybe we'll kind of prolong the effects of climate change and then those underdeveloped countries can kind of catch up as we go yeah and it's also worth noting that the reason that we are wealthier is the same reason that climate change is happening. I mean, the industrial revolution, yeah, it boosted the economies of a lot of the Western world, but CO2 emissions have been rising just as quickly since then. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting little debate. And that's actually the topic of a lot of international discussions around climate change is what do we do to help out the developing world? Right. So actually staying in Europe, the next one is coming from Sarah Gibbons of National Geographic. And she wrote that experts fear Germany's deadly floods are a glimpse into climate future. Yeah, this is awful, awful news. And um, on Monday, NPR's Up First reported that the death toll was at 180 and climbing. Uh, Most of the flooding occurred over the Rhine River Basin in Germany, where rainfall set new records, causing homes to be destroyed or float away roads being only navigable by boats, sinkholes opening, and part of a castle even got swept away. So truly just jarring scenes that are also impacting Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg. Dieter Gerten, a climatologist at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, says it isn't surprising because we have seen an increase of extreme events in climate model projections. Despite this, Gerten was still shocked when he saw the floods, which impacted his hometown of Oberkeil. And that sentiment really struck me because if you read the article, um, that first quote he says is there, and then there's a picture. And after reading the first quote, I was reading it on my phone, so I couldn't see the follow-up part of the quote. And I was thinking, yeah, it's shocking to see, even if it shouldn't be. Like, we're expecting more flooding. We're expecting worse flooding. Yeah. But it still doesn't prepare you to see this. And then I scrolled down past the photo and yeah, he agreed and said the same thing pretty much. So European leaders have been using the floods to further emphasize what needs to be done to both mitigate and adapt to climate change. Um, We talked about this issue in California last week with how they were experiencing an energy shortage and events like that and events like this one show that rich countries are not immune to the impacts of climate change. The issue here stems from a slow-moving, low-pressure system that had been causing rainfall for about a week in Western Europe. On Monday of last week, that led to floods in London before extending to Southern Europe. Scientists say that climate change increases the amount of rain delivered and the speed, or lack thereof, that this storm moved. And Girton said that this could be more likely because of climate change for the rest of this century. And the article outlines how that works, which is something I want to highlight because it's a lot easier to understand the way that they say it. So warmer air can hold more water. For every 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit of warming, the atmosphere can hold about 7% more moisture. With more moisture, low pressure systems like the one we see here will produce more rainfall. And that also means hurricanes in the Atlantic Ocean will produce more rainfall. Scientists also fear that the warming in the Arctic and Antarctica is destabilizing the jet stream in the Northern Hemisphere 
and that jet stream moves high and low pressure systems throughout with strong winds. With the Arctic and Antarctica warming at two to three times faster than the rest of the world, it's likely that there is more to come with events like these, which is very sombering and pretty scary. Yeah, definitely. And I'm just thinking, like, are there any flood prevention, like, measures that can be, you know, widely adopted by cities all over the world? Like, I'm just thinking about straight up like a vacuum that goes into sewers and you flip it on and it just like sucks all the water down super quick. I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. <laughs> like, a, like Super Mario Sunshine. Yeah, the, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, coastal engineers that are looking into systems that can reduce flooding, like the impacts of it. I don't know for certain really how those work, but I do have a good friend of mine who is a coastal engineer. So Sean, if you're listening, uh, please come on the show soon and we can talk about flooding. <laughs> yeah. And if Sean does not, then I will go ahead and look it up and report back next week. Yeah. As, as always, if Sean is not listening, then his shout out has been revoked. So. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Sean. All right. So let's get into the next one. So this next one is right up my alley and it's from Christopher Flavel of the New York Times and it's titled Scorched, Parched, and Now Uninsurable. Climate change hits wine country. Yeah, this article talks about some of the challenges faced in Napa Valley in California as they continue to produce wine in a changing climate. Napa has some of the world's most expensive farmland where an acre can go for $1 million. A ton of grapes is worth two to four times more from this area than anywhere else in California. So this is an area that makes enough money and has enough reason to try to adapt to climate change. If droughts get worse, the wineries could easily go out of business. But like we said, the farmland's worth a lot more and they're making a lot more money off of each ton of grapes. So they have the means to adapt, which is exciting. And we'll get into that. One thing Napa's wine industry has to deal with is being called smoke taint, where smoke from wildfires gets to the skin of the wine grapes and affects their taste, even if the fire itself is a long distance away. Smoke taint impacts red wines more because the skin is used in the winemaking process. For white wines, the skin is discarded. So I thought that was kind of an interesting tidbit that I didn't know anything about. To combat heat, winemakers have begun spraying vines with sunscreen to prevent them from burning. One winemaker states that the strategy isn't perfect and that high temperatures can become extremely expensive raisins from the heat, but it does help. And with that, he was just saying, even with the sunscreen, some of these grapes are going to dry up um, and get very dense, very dark, and basically just be raisins. (laughs) (laughs) Another issue has been insurance from wildfires for the winemakers. Water shortages and smoke taint are making it harder to find a company willing to insure the land, but winemakers are anticipating that the insurers will return if Napa can go another year or two without major wildfires. If you've been listening to this show, you know how harsh the wildfire season has been this year. So, look, if not for the people that are living there, let's just hope for the wine that they can go another year or two without a season like this. The water shortages are also causing winemakers to import water by the truckload, which greatly increases the cost of the production of wine. One winery is using gray water for this by filling a tanker truck with 3,500 gallons of treated wastewater eight times per day and transporting the water 10 miles back to the winery. So it's no small feat to do this. And I found it 
you know, extremely impressive that this winery is willing to send a truck back and forth 10 miles each way, eight times a day with 3,500 gallons per truckload. For reference, gray water, if you haven't heard of it, is basically water that's been used for sinks, showers, sometimes toilets, etc., and gets sifted, filtered, and disinfected. It's common to have water from sinks, washing machines, showers, etc., be used in toilets for smaller gray water systems that don't require as much disinfection because you're not really going to do anything with the water after it goes through the toilet and it doesn't have to be spotless. So you can wash your hands and that water can go into the toilet without it really impacting you. Taking water from toilets for use in agriculture requires more disinfection for what I hope are obvious reasons. (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting to see how California's wineries are facing so many challenges that all stem from the earth getting hotter and how they are living with those challenges already and finding ways to adapt to it. It likely means that the cost of wine might increase, but this doesn't mean the wine industry there will go out of business anytime soon. Like I said, they make enough money to adapt and, you know, let's hope for the best here. Yeah. I mean, you don't want your red wine, your Cabernet Sauvignon coming out and tasting like a mezcal, you know, like the smokiness from the trees and stuff. It's just not going to work. So the pictures of the trees fully on fire was just straight up horrifying. I don't know if you saw that map, but it was, I think it was in the article. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, when you talk about wine and winemaking, it's it's all about terroir. And what's basically is like the climate, the soil and the terrain, whether the terrain is mountainous or like in a valley in which the wine is created. If the terroir is altered in any way, it could take literally years for these guys to get the product back to what they were actually producing. Come for the environmental news, but stick around for Nick's pronunciation of terroir. Terroir. (laughs) (laughs) I could just, I'll do an ASMR video of me just saying terroir. (laughs) Terroir. That mixed with just a chef's kiss. All right. The next one is more bad news related to wildfires. And I feel like uh, this summer we've just been doing a weekly wildfire update at this point. Um, It's it's definitely been a rough one. And here comes another rough story. Yeah. So this one is from Henry Fountain of the New York Times. And he reported, how bad is Oregon's bootleg fire? It's generating its own weather. Dude, this headline alone is shocking, but the report really breaks down how shocking it, it is. It's the largest wildfire in the United States this year and has already burned 388,000 acres of forest and grasslands as of Tuesday, which equals 606 square miles. This fire is so intense that it's disrupting wind patterns and the atmosphere in general. The fire has been raging for two weeks at this point, and the change in wind because of it is causing flames to spread in the forest canopy. That spread, along with the winds blowing embers, is lighting fire spots elsewhere. So it's kind of just this cycle of the fire creating more fire. Wow. When fire gets bad enough to generate its own weather, the wildfires can create their own clouds and even generate fire tornadoes. So putting out a fire like this is no small feat. Firefighters put a chemical fire retardant along the fire's northern edge and the wildfire actually jumped past that line by sparking over it. The fire's clouds can also cause lightning strikes, which have their own ability to create more fires. As a result of the drought and extreme heat, the trees in southern Oregon are very dry, which leads to a greater fire risk during the wildfire season. Uh, Nick, I also, when I was researching this, I found out that the clouds created by wildfires are called 
Pyronimbus. So, little uh, fun, I guess fun fact is the wrong phrase there. Something you can tell your friends if you're ever talking about wildfires. Yeah, that sounds like a Harry Potter broom. Yeah, <laughs> the Pyronimbus <laughs> 3000. Um, yeah, so Marcus Kaufman summed this whole situation up with an interesting but terrifying quote. The fire is so large and generating so much energy and extreme heat that it's changing the weather. Normally, the weather predicts what the fire will do. In this case, the fire is predicting what the weather will do. So I guess now the only hope we have is large rainfall that can help out the firefighters because this seems like it's getting really, really tough to manage. Yeah, and what sucks the most is that we literally talked about this in last week's episode and like, boom, here it is. Like another 606 square miles just like completely gone. Um, and I was looking in the article and they had the a pyrocumulus cloud and it literally looks like an explosion like in the sky. Like it's a perfectly blue sky. Obviously there's like smoke below it, but it's just an explosion in the sky of like clouds. It's scary. I understand where the name for uh, explosions in the sky, the band came from. <laughs> also editor's note, I think I think I might have gotten the name wrong. I think I said pyronimbus, thinking of cumulonimbus, but uh, Nick definitely just got it right with pyrocumulus. So, uh, well, we're keeping that in because the Harry Potter broom is just too good. Listen, I will take my own mistakes if it leads us to a great reference. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's go ahead and end these quick hits on some finally happier news out of Brussels where Wolves August and Noella had at least five cubs, as reported first by Helen Lyons of the Brussels Times. Hell of a story about two wolves that I had never heard of before Tuesday of this week. And honestly, that's on me, because apparently they're a really big deal, and August and Noella were introduced a while back for conservation purposes to help populate the species, and they are fan favorites in Brussels, which is really cool to see. Um... Trail footage revealed that Noella was pregnant in April, but conservationists actually found out earlier than that in March and decided to hold back the information for a bit. And they also haven't even shown any pictures of all five of the cubs together so that the location of the wolf family is not given away to poachers. To which I would also like to add something. Stop poaching. (laughs) It's selfish. (laughs) The Nature and Woodland Institute announced this news and has been closely following the wolves since introducing them, like I said, for conservation purposes. And the two seem to have a big following. Um, When it was announced that she was pregnant, that was one of the top news stories that week out of conservation land. So, you know, just kind of cool to see the things that the little conservation circle rallies around. And for this one, it's repopulating wolves. So definitely click the link in the show notes so you can look at some really cute videos of our show's new favorite wolf family. Yes, they are my favorite. These wolves are the Bernstein Bears of wolves. They are a little happy-go-lucky family, just ready to take on the world. We don't really have time to get into this, but you saying Bernstein Bears just reminded me of the uh, Mandela Oh, effect. Stain? Yeah. Um, <laughs> different story for a different show, but if you're interested, look up the Mandela Effect because it is wild, and I guarantee you're misremembering a lot of phrases. All right, so I think that wraps up our quick hits for the week. Uh, Matt, do you want to take a break? I would love to, Nick. 
All right, cool. So after the break, we will be answering some questions from you guys, the listeners. So go ahead and stay tuned. Let's roll. Nick, this weekend, Kaylee and I had a friend visit and it was a hot one. It's always a hot one in New York City, I feel like, because the heat's just manifesting off of all of the skyscrapers. And you know what I had? I had three handkerchiefs for myself, Kaylee, and our friend. Everyone. Dry foreheads, dry armpits. The only thing that was not dry was my eyes because I was just crying tears of joy that everyone was experiencing this with me. (laughs) And I wish I could relive it forever. Matt, it's a beautiful moment when you get your buddies hooked on Vala Alta's handkerchief. Um, It also is a beautiful moment when you get the handkerchief out of the wash and it smells so good, you throw it up to your face. It's like, oh. You've heard of fresh linen from your candle, but have you ever heard of fresh Irish linen? Vala Alta's everyday handkerchief is a high performance daily use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.com and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot com and code TPT. Guys, get your friends hooked on them. Get yourself hooked on them. Get your mom hooked on them. Valaalta.com. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. This week, we are doing some listener Q&A as a thank you to our listeners. So thank you guys so much for listening. We wanted to take some time out and talk to you guys. Yeah, interacting with you all on Instagram and Twitter has been one of the more fun parts of doing this show. So we can definitely do this every few months if it's something that the listeners like and something that we like. And yeah, it's been awesome so far. So thank you to everyone who reached out and we're going to plug in a few of those questions you dropped for us here. All right. So the first one comes from Virginia Croft and she asked, is anything getting better? Existential feelings are every day. Virginia, I totally get it. It is hard to hear what's going on and not feel overwhelmed, especially with a news cycle like we had this week where, you know, a lot of the quick hits that we're talking about are just daunting. Um, But there are definitely things that are getting better. There's a lot of nonprofit organizations that are working on reforestation and plenty of governments are working towards preventing deforestation. So that's something you can look towards as awesome climate change mitigation. Um, In the public policy front this week, John Kerry called on China to lower its carbon emissions more quickly than the Chinese government had planned on doing and also encouraged other world leaders to do the same. So, you know, you have the NGOs that are fighting the good fight and we're starting to see a lot of governments just coming together and saying, hey, the stuff we agreed on in the Paris Agreement, we need to do that, except we have to do it more quickly than we anticipated. Um, And then on the tech front, renewable energy continues to get cheaper 
And there's plenty of research that's going into improving battery storage, which that's going to impact your solar energy, your wind energy, transportation of that energy to and from different sources to the utility hookups. And it's also going to impact electric vehicles with better battery storage because they won't need to charge as often. And also that intersection between those solar panels on your roof and the charger for your electric car. It's all just interesting stuff that's kind of coming together at the right time. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. All that. And also, whenever you're sad, Virginia, just think about the Nissan Leaf. I mean, that's the only thing you got to do is just think about the Nissan Leaf. Think about them coming on this show as a sponsor and giving a 15-minute speech about the Nissan Leaf because that's what makes me continue. The The Nissan Leaf needs to just cut the check at this point. Give, <laughs> us, give us Nissan Leafs or ad revenue. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, stop dragging your feet, Nissan. All right, so the next question comes from Steve Sisignano, and he asked, how long until sushi is intolerably expensive? Good question, Steve. And I think we still have plenty of time based solely on my own optimism and or naivety. Um, but even if that price of fish goes up, we can still eat sweet potato tempura rolls or Oshinko rolls. And if you haven't had it, pickled radish is absolutely delicious. So I would recommend that type of roll. Um, but no, on a more serious front, there is a good chance that certain types of fish are going to get more expensive. Um, I know that Chilean sea bass is something that's very expensive if you go to a fish market, and that's because it's endangered. So to pay for it, you basically have to pay that extra premium knowing that fisheries aren't taking as much out of the sea as they could because the quotas are so low to help the fish repopulate. So, you know, there's going to be a chance and there could be cycles where certain fish become more expensive during seasons where conservationists are focusing on making sure those fish repopulate. Um, that's something I could see happening with salmon if some of the news that we've heard out of the Pacific Northwest continues. But um, no, I think overall sushi is probably going to stay similar price, plus or minus inflation. Yeah. And don't knock the sweet potato roll because they are fantastic. And, you know, don't forget also they put a little side of ginger and a little side of wasabi. You can always just have that. So I don't know. That's not the worst thing that's ever happened. All right. So we have our first anonymous question asker and they asked, it was awesome to hear about the giant panda last week. Are there any other animals we can feel good about? Yes, there are anonymous question asker who requested in the Twitter DMs. Please don't read my name out on the show. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the first one I can think of is the bison. Uh, and I've spoken about this, but I used to work at the Bronx Zoo. And the Bronx Zoo was actually one of the first places to incorporate bison conservation into their key agenda. So they worked with President Teddy Roosevelt at the time and the National Bison Society, who was called. Um, or the American Bison Society. I don't really remember off the top of my head. But anyway, um, they took a bunch of bison from Yellowstone and then they brought them to the Bronx Zoo and started working on repopulation. And they started to bring that group from the zoo back out into Yellowstone and out into more of the Midwest to just start to repopulate. I mean, before westward expansion, we used to have between, I think it's like 50 and 60 million bison and then by 1900, we were down to 1,000, and now we're back up over 500,000 bison. You know, the numbers aren't nearly what they once were, and it's something where when you also think about the fact that they were just hunted for sport, and it was kind of just this, we have guns and we can do this sort of approach that 
makes the whole almost extinction of their species even worse. But they've bounced back and are now America's national mammal. So um, shout out the bison and shout out the Bronx Zoo for your work there. Heck yeah, bison. Another one I can think of is bald eagles. And there was a chemical DDT that was used as an insecticide. And basically the way that it interacted with different animals is DDT would get sprayed and then other animals would eat those bugs and then bigger animals would eat those and then eventually it would get into fish and the water supply and eagles would then eat those animals and DDT just kind of accumulated in their cells and what happened was it would make their eggs soft when they would go to lay them which is a really bad problem because eagles then perch on the eggs to keep them incubated and they would crush them. Ugh. So DDT ended up getting banned because eagle numbers were dropping so much and they have bounced back really well since the banning of DDT. So there's a bunch of stories like that out there and those are two that I think are awesome animals to highlight. So Yeah, two American icons, I would say. All right, so let's go ahead and get to the next question. Ariana Cipriani asked, are birds real? Uh, Ari, I've been saying good question to a lot of our listeners, but this is just a bad question from you. Uh, <laughs> no, government drones that are spying on us are not, quote, birds. Uh, birds are not real. That was satire. Yes, birds are real, um, but the birds aren't real Instagram account gets a laugh out of me 10 times out of 10. Oh, I didn't even know that existed. <laughs> I'm going to have to check it's, that out. It's so funny. Um, what is it? What do they post? They post like random pictures of like, of birds just like looking on people's conversations and stuff? Pretty much. And just like birds spying into your window. And it's like, ah, the government's looking. It's my FBI agent looking at me again. <laughs> oh, he's watching me stuff my face with this third cupcake. He knows I'm up to something. Um, yeah, switching gears, Nick. Francesca Janusa asks, Oh boy. Nick, who is your favorite sister and why is it me? Oh gosh, here we go. You know what? I will answer that question for you to keep you out of trouble since I only have one sister <laughs> and she is also my favorite sister. Love you, Jules. There you go. That's the answer, Chess, okay? <laughs> take it, take her to leave it. All right, so the next one is from Darby Hogan and she asks, what are some things I can do to help reduce my ecological footprint? Great question, Darby. Um, I'm going to throw out a bunch of things, and I recognize that not everyone can do all of these things, but I think we can all do some of them. So um, one would be public transportation instead of driving a car. That is really easy for me to say. I live in New York City. Mass transit's a big deal here, and it's used by almost everyone that lives here, probably. Um, so that's something where you know the trains are running, and they're electric. Easy way to not have gasoline emissions from transportation is to just hop on the subway. Another one would be the old jingle that everyone knows, reduce, reuse, and recycle. But I really want to point out that it's in that order. When you look at plastics, something like only 6% of plastic is reincorporated into plastics. So the first would be reducing your consumption and just not getting as many things that you need to throw out. The next would be reusing those if you can. So if you go to a grocery store, you forget your reusable bags take the paper bags and then use them as garbage bags. Use them as, you know, recycling for, I'm going to put all my cardboard in this paper bag and then when I have to take all of the cardboard out, it's all staying together anyway. So reduce first, then reuse. And if you can't do that, recycle it um, while we're on the topic. Just remember if you have a aluminum can of beans or whatever, 
rinse it out before recycling it so you don't contaminate the entire crop and you know rinse it dry it throw it in the recycling yeah and i remember i can still remember the uh disney channel song where they were like do you remember that song? I remember Miranda Cosgrove singing that, but that was Nickelodeon. Oh, maybe that was it. I don't know. Maybe that was it. I'm just completely messing that up. I don't know. You had a little Jonas Brothers funk there with the... That's what I'm saying. I thought it was them or someone like that. I don't know. Um, some more things you could do would be eat less meat or eat no meat or no animal products, you know, like whatever works for you. Uh, that was a general statement because Darb, I know I don't have to tell you to eat less meat. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, in, in general, for all the listeners, you can do little things that impact your diet a little bit that if every single person does that, it adds up. Yeah. And you can participate in this thing. It's actually every week and it's called meatless Mondays. So just try and do that. Cause if everyone does that, there's like a crazy statistic out there that I don't have on hand, but if everyone participated in, in meatless Monday, it would be like an astronomical amount of, you know, cows, you know, chickens, lives saved, whatever it is, you know, I did that, uh, Monday and Tuesday this week and it was super easy, Yeah, but I also like vegetables. So <laughs> <laughs> I benefit there. Um, speaking of vegetables, another one you can do is shop locally for your produce. We talked about transportation emissions earlier, and that's something where you don't have as many transportation emissions if you're getting your vegetables from local farmers. And a lot of grocery stores will broadcast, you know, like we get our corn locally or whatever. Go for those and try to get vegetables that are in season. And then finally, another one would be phasing out plastics as best you can. I'm talking reusable water bottles. Tupperware instead of Ziploc bags, metal straws, you know, there's plenty of things that are surprisingly easy once you start. And honestly, not having to buy Ziploc bags has been so nice. I can't, I can't tell you the last time I did because it's just not something I need anymore. Like I'm, I made a lot of decisions based on environmentalism that then impact my wallet. So it's kind of this win-win. Yeah. And keeping the metal straw on you too, like you get your iced coffee, pop your metal straw in, it's like okay, that guy's a badass. Like I would not screw with that guy. He just poured a metal straw and he put it in his iced coffee. I have one that folds up and has silicone on the inside. So it's like folds into four quadrants. And when you open it up, it snaps. And uh, I don't know if I should feel really cool or really dorky, but somewhere (laughs) in between. That guy means business. That guy is a nerd. (laughs) All right. So let's get into the next question. And it comes from Greg Muller. And he asks, why does it seem that there's zero social pressure to not fly a lot when it also seems to be so much worse for the planet than eating meat or avoiding single-use plastics? Great question, Greg, and an interesting follow-up to Darby's question right before yours. I think personally it's because flying is still necessary for certain things. There's a lot of environmentalists out there who have started to take trains more often and have also been encouraging others to fly less but it's definitely less mainstream of an idea than the other ones that you mentioned. So part of that, I think, is that it's easier to say, hey, you, buy a reusable grocery bag because you can also carry more groceries per bag with them Um, instead of saying, hey, you, stop visiting your family that lives across the country. Or if you want to go see (laughs) them, you can take a three-day train ride. It's something where people still feel the need to fly because it's more convenient. And with 
you know, reducing single use plastics, I think it's more convenient to just have a water bottle that you could fill up all the time. I think it's more convenient to need three grocery bags that are made of a reusable substance instead of like six plastic bags that are going to rip if you put too much in them and also leave those lines all over your arms because there's no way you're making two trips to and from the car. (laughs) And then another thing that I think is worth bringing up is that aviation emissions have always kind of been a tricky one in public policy because of international travel and with carbon taxes, the idea is if we begin to charge people extra for their carbon emissions, who pays for that? Like, does the country that you're taking off from charge the carbon tax or does the one that you're landing in charge the carbon tax? And assuming that this carbon tax would go into a fund for each country that's dedicated to offsetting carbon emissions, it's a tough thing to negotiate because both countries would want that funding. Research into powering airplanes with renewable energy is a super promising idea, though, especially with Europe's plan to invest more into that. So I think you ask a really good question, and I hope that in five, 10 years, as renewable energy for airplanes becomes more mainstream, it's a question that we don't even have to worry about. But, you know, we'll see where it goes. Yeah, hopefully we can get the high speed train thing going like we we keep talking about it but nothing is actually ever done i know it's expensive but gosh that would be awesome dude i saw an amazing meme about that the other day on twitter and it was like um this this woman in a bikini and she was like what do men really want and this guy quoted the tweet and just put a map of the high speed rail train (laughs) that goes all throughout the country and i was like yes All right, let's get into the next one. So this one comes from Kaylee Veets, and she asks, loved the TED Talk you guys covered a few episodes ago about eco-anxiety in young people. What helps you to stay optimistic when it comes to combating climate change? Personally, I stay optimistic because the current green revolution we're seeing that's starting to take off has serious potential to fix a lot of the issues stemming from as far back as the Industrial Revolution. Admittedly, I am nervous that we won't do enough or that we won't do it soon enough, But it's so hard to see some of the developments in electric vehicles, solar energy, offshore wind power, fighting deforestation, plant-based alternatives to meat, like all of those things that are going on right now, which is all so exciting for me, and then not stay hopeful about it. So I think there's too much good going on to not be optimistic. And in, in short, I guess I'm optimistic because I need to be optimistic about this. I think a lot of it is on the policymakers. Like if we can pressure them, if we can demand it, then it, it'll happen. Like it, we can enact change ourselves as, as, uh, as a country. As a world, yeah. All right, so this person also asked to stay anonymous, but wants to know, what are each of your favorite animals? Mine personally is the African elephant um, because I love elephants and African elephants have bigger ears than Asian elephants. So I just always kind of, I love them. Um, They're also extremely intelligent animals and they've been known to have really, really great memories and go back to visit the essentially graveyard of where elephants and their families have died um, many, many years afterwards, just as kind of like a way to remember them. And I don't know if memorialize is the right word in elephant culture, but no, they're super, super uh, empathetic animals and beautiful and just always loved them. Yeah. Uh, That's a really good one. I think mine is, and I think I've said it on the show, 
but the killer whales. I love the family aspect that they have. Uh, they outline it a little bit in Blackfish, but like they're all about like keeping the pack together and they communicate like so much with each other. And I think that that's so cool. Like the fact that they can just like talk to one another basically the same way we do. Uh, breaking news, Fast and the Furious 10 is going to be about Vin Diesel and a bunch of orcas because they're all about family. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen the Twitter meme where it's like your eyes on weed, cocaine, LSD. And it's everybody's like, eyes tweaking out and then it's just Vin Diesel's eyes, right? And yeah, and then it says family. <laughs> oh my God, the internet is just undefeated. It's beautiful. All right, so this is our last one and it comes from Virginia Croft and she asks, favorite Pixar movie and why? Ooh, man. Um, I feel like for the show, I kind of have to say Wally. Which is definitely my top two or three, just because it's great movie. It's awesome, but it's also about you know what happens with overconsumption. Um, but no, my my favorite Pixar movie is Up because I would do literally anything for Doug, just iconic dog, and uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm very happy to have seen that movie as many times as I have. Uh, for me, I think it's got to be Ratatouille. Anyone who knows me knows I love Ratatouille. Um, it's just one of the most beautiful pieces of cinema I've ever seen in my whole life. It makes me want to move to Paris every time I watch it. And it also makes me want to cook. So yeah, I am Chef Gusteau. It's an awesome movie. And you know what? If you're Chef Gusteau, then I am your Remy. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So thank you to everyone who submitted questions. That was super fun. And I hope that, uh, you know, some of the ones that are about environmentalism, you have clear answers to, um, there were some things that didn't really come up in the show that, you know, you had a chance to ask us about. So that's great. And for the other ones that were more just general stuff, I hope that, you know, you now feel like, you know, both Nick and me a little bit better. So thanks again. Yeah. Thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate all the questions and just send them in every week. Who cares? We'll answer some on the show anyway. All right. That'll do it for this week's episode of The Planet Today. Next week, I will be on vacation with my family, so we'll be running our interview with Ryan Burns of Bartlett Tree Experts. Until that episode drops, you can keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram at planettodaypod or email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. We'd also really appreciate it if you shared the show with a friend or two, tell someone you think would like the show, or just share our posts on our social medias. Like, it really helps a lot if you know we have a cool post and... You share it on your Instagram story or I tweet something that isn't really that exciting and you retweet it, but no, it it helps. It just organically grows. So aside from that, if you have any questions you want answered, you can send them in any week. Don't have to wait for the listener Q and a episode because we always have time for you. If you see a story you want us to cover, you can send that too, because it's helpful for us to, uh, cut into some of that research time. If you like the show, please give it a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Even if you listen on Google or Spotify, the reviews on Apple really help the show grow the most. If you don't feel like the show is worth five stars, that is okay, but you can still give us a five-star rating to tell us, hey, I think you could do better with this. The Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norden. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norden. We are produced by the incredibly talented Nick Janusa, who also does the music for every single one of these here shows. Nick, where can our listeners hear more from you? Yeah, you can find me on soundcloud.com 
at soundcloud.com slash budlandcape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Our logo was made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here next Friday. Peace.